millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. For my first recommendation, I'm going to go with an absolute classic. Simon Sharma's A History of Britain, Volume 1. This is the first of a three-part series that covers the whole history of Britain in one continuous and easy-to-follow narrative. Volume 1 goes from 3000 BCE right up to the death of Elizabeth I, and all in just under 16 hours. Go get it. It is well worth the listen. And it's free when you sign up for a trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. That's audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Before I start today's show, I'd like to do a quick shout out to listener Hannah, who is the first person to donate some money to the show through www.queensofenglandpodcast.com forward slash support. Producing a podcast can be an expensive task, so anyone who feels like sending a few quid my way should check out the website. So thanks Hannah, here's hoping you are the first of many. coronation of Matilda of Flanders in 1068, there were many foreign dignitaries present. Among them was Agatha, wife of the late Edward the Exile, and her three children, Edgar, Christina, and Margaret. Now, the story of Edward the Exile is a really interesting one, which I unfortunately don't have time to get into here. But I've put a link to the Wikipedia page on him in the show notes, and also included a good book on him in the bibliography. You can find both of these things at the Queens of England podcast.com. He was the son of King Edmund Ironside, and was exiled under the reign of the Viking King Canute, and was meant to succeed Edward the Confessor, but died two days after returning to England, causing, well, 1066 and all that. This link with Anglo-Saxon royalty would become important, so keep that in your brain. Shortly after the coronation of Matilda of Flanders, mother and children fled for the protection of the court of King Malcolm of Scotland, and there, the Scottish ruler proposed marriage to Agatha's daughter Margaret. Now, Margaret, like so many of the women we'll discuss, had a reputation for piety, but she really rules the roost where this is concerned. 
Indeed, she would go on to become Scotland's first saint. This marriage, like most of the period, had little to do with love. Malcolm wanted a highborn woman to improve the image of his royal house, and Margaret wanted an army to help put her brother Edgar the Aetheling on the throne of England and throw out the hated Normans. And, in case you're wondering, Malcolm is the historical equivalent of Malcolm in Shakespeare's Macbeth. I mean the Scottish play. While repeated Scottish invasions of England yielded very little, Margaret and Malcolm did succeed in producing a great brood of children, the fifth and first daughter of which was Edith, who was born in 1080. Now, remember in the last episode, when I talked about William taking Robert and Matilda back to England with him in 1080, just after their quote-unquote rapprochement? No? Well, anyway, I did. And as part of this trip across the Channel, mother and son rode up to Scotland to attend Edith's baptism, where Robert and Matilda were named as godparents. During the ceremony, baby Edith is said to have reached up and grabbed the royal headdress that Matilda was wearing and tried to pull it onto her own head. This was taken as an omen that there was a bright and royal future for Edith, omens that were to be proven right. Her upbringing at the Scottish court, supervised by her deeply religious mother, was apparently a happy one. A strict but loving parent, Margaret took her responsibilities as a mother very seriously. According to the life of St Margaret, she, quote, poured out care to her children, not less than to herself, seeing that they were nourished with all diligence and introduced to honest manners as much as possible. She even was said to have fed the children herself with the spoons that she herself had used as a child. At the age of six, Edith was sent with her sister Mary to the Abbey of Romsey in southern England, where her aunt Christina had just been named the abbess. Christina's method of raising Edith involved much less spoon-feeding and much, much more caning. In later life, the future queen would claim that she spent her later childhood, quote, in fear of the rod of my aunt Christina, who would often make me smart with a good slapping and the most horrible scolding, as well as treating me as being in disgrace. Although she later gained a reputation for piety, her experience at Romsey and later at Wilton did not encourage Edith to take the veil and become a nun. Indeed, she later related that behind the back of her aunt, she hated the veil. Quote, As soon as I was able to escape her sight, I tore it off and threw it in the dirt and trampled on it. This was my only way of venting my rage and the hatred of it that boiled up in me. Despite this, it seems that Christina's intention was for Edith to become a nun, but this was not the intention of her father. Indeed, when Malcolm visited Edith and saw her dressed up as a nun, he ripped her veil off her head, tore it up, and trampled on it himself. This veil must have been very sturdy to stand up to all the stamping. He was not about to have his prized marriage asset cloistered in a nunnery, and his daughter was all too happy to oblige. Indeed, Malcolm had a husband lined up for his teenage daughter, Alan the Red, the Count of Richmond, and one of the largest landowners in England. Yet this went spectacularly badly. Now, reports of what happened here are rather confusing, but it seems that Alan the Red went to visit the Abbey of Wilton, where Edith was based, though it isn't clear as to whether she was still there when he visited. But what we do know is that he left in a hurry, abducting Gunhilda, a daughter of Harold Godwinson, who most certainly did not want to leave with him. A few days later, though, Alan was dead, by whose hands it is not known. But I like to think that Gunhilda had something to do with that. You do not mess with Saxon princesses. This was not the only man Edith would be linked with before 1100. The next man to make a play for her was William of Warren, the Earl of Surrey, but he was refused. 
and some sources even claim that she aroused the interest of the king himself, but nothing came of it. According to Audric Vitalis, she was, quote, destined by heaven for a more illustrious marriage. It is around this time that it seems that Edith decided on a change of name. Edith was an English royal name, having been associated with many noble women, and most notably the wife of Edward the Confessor, but seemingly the young princess of Scotland wants a name that would ingratiate her more with the present rather than the past. Searching around for a more Norman name, she chose the name of her late godmother, Matilda, and thus from now on, that's what I'll call her. As a side note, if you've read ahead, you will know that there are a lot of Matildas in this period. We've already had two, and there are a few more to come. To try to avoid confusion, wherever there is doubt about to whom I am referring, I will give the full names that historians have given each Matilda. Therefore, we have Matilda of Flanders, who we have already met, Matilda of Scotland, who we are currently learning about, the Empress Matilda, who we'll meet later, and Matilda of Boulogne, who will be the subject of a later episode. 1100 was a momentous year. In August, William Rufus, the second Norman King of England, died in the New Forest, thanks to what historian Lois Honeycutt diplomatically calls a, quote, stray arrow. We'll never know whether his younger brother Henry, who was present at his brother's death, had anything to do with it, but he certainly made his next move very quickly. His older brother Robert had already been passed over for the throne once, after the death of William the Conqueror, in acrimonious circumstances so severe that it caused a brief civil war. That war was won decisively by Rufus, who, in return for seizing territory on the continent, allowed Robert to remain as Duke of Normandy. After this war, Robert departed for the Holy Land as part of the First Crusade, and by all accounts this was the high point of his life, gaining fame, fortune, and a wealthy bride on the way. Had he been in England or Normandy on the death of his younger brother William, he would have found himself in a very strong position. But sadly for him, he was transiting Germany when news broke of William Rufus's death, and before he could react, he heard that his youngest brother, Henry, had seized the throne. Back in England, Henry faced a series of big problems. Seizing the throne had been easy, but holding on to it would be another thing entirely. Robert's power base was in Normandy, so Henry decided to appease his English subjects and English-based nobles, though, of course, most nobles had lands on both sides of the continent. He issued his famous Charter of Liberties, which granted many rights to his nobles, a document that would later strongly influence Magna Carta. I've included a link to it in the show notes. Henry also recalled the popular Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm. William Rufus had no patience for the church, and had been in pretty much constant conflict with Anselm since his investiture in 1093. Recalling him would give Henry support from the English clergy, and having appeased his nobles with the Charter of Liberties, he now just needed to appease his English subjects in order to pull off the perfect trifecta. We don't know exactly when Henry and Matilda first met, but it seems that he must have had her in mind for a future bride. She brought with her a number of advantages. She was born into the purple, just like him, and was a native-born Anglo-Saxon, unlike him. William of Malmesbury described her as, quote, of the rightful kingly line of England. For the rest of English, seeing one of their own ascending to the throne and being the mother of future kings would have been a welcome sight. This noble blood would also aid Henry's own claim, as his was tenuous at best, based off the little-used-in-the-West system of porphyrogeniture, the idea that the best claimant to the throne was the one who was born into the purple rather than the firstborn son. This match seemed perfect, but there was a big, big problem. As with the marriage of Henry's parents, William and Matilda, the church had a problem with their match. This time, though, it had nothing to do with the consanguinity, but was to do with Matilda's childhood at Romsey and Wilton. 
The problem is that the vows that nuns made when they took the veil explicitly forbade them to marry. Becoming a nun was a lifelong commitment, and you couldn't just break it because you changed your mind. Since she had spent almost her entire childhood in religious houses and had been seen to be wearing the veil, it was thought by many that she had become a nun, something that the princess herself denied. In order to sort this out, a church council was called by Archbishop Anselm, and Matilda was called to explain herself. This was no formality. Anselm himself had said before the trial that he, quote, would not be induced by any pleading to take from God his bride and join her to any earthly husband. The argument that Matilda used was that she wore the veil in order to protect herself from the, quote, lust of the Normans. She told them about the beatings that she had sustained from her aunt and how she used to trample on the veil in private. Her argument carried some weight. In the wake of the conquest, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, Lanfranc, had ruled that women taking shelter in convents were not to be considered nuns. With marauding and somewhat randy Normans roaming the country, it had been a dangerous time for a woman in southern England, and the protection of the veil was deemed a necessary deception to make. This argument placated both Anselm and the bishops of England, who confirmed her right to marry, saying that, quote, Under the circumstances of the matter, the girl could not rightly be bound by any decision to prevent her from being free to dispose of her person in whatever way she legally wished. I believe that's complex medieval speak for... Yeah, I guess that's fine. Legal speak, it seems, has always been impenetrable. Matilda offered to make a vow attesting to the truth of her words, but it was deemed unnecessary. On the 11th November, 1100, Anselm, in front of the King, Matilda, and a huge crowd at Westminster Abbey, declared that he had investigated the matter, and that if anyone else had an objection, then they should speak out. According to Ayadma, the crowd rapturously acclaimed Matilda as their new queen, and so Anselm married Henry and Matilda there and then, and also officially crowned the Scottish princess as Queen of England. As I said before, the choice of Matilda as Henry's bride was a purely political move to attempt to shore up his Anglo-Saxon base, as he knew that an attack was coming from Normandy. Robert Curthose, the newly resurgent hero of the Crusades, was not going to take his brother's seizure of the throne lightly, and he quickly began to build up support for an invasion. His threat was very real, and Henry faced a real crisis of support. Indeed, some of the initial criticism was over Henry's choice of a local bride. His nobles labelled them Godric and Godiva, two typical Anglo-Saxon names, essentially saying that he had forgotten his Norman roots and gone native. Things were looking shaky, and came to a head in 1101 with the escape of the Bishop of Durham from the Tower. Bishop Reynolds Flambard had been the chief minister of William Rufus, and had been imprisoned by Henry on his succession as a penalty for the financial excesses of the previous regime. Without wanting to get too much into the reign of Rufus, he has a similar reputation to Henry VII in terms of his policy of squeezing his nobles for cash, and his vessel for this had been Flambard. Imprisoning him, therefore, was yet another attempt by Henry to carry favour with his nobles. Flambard was the first ever inmate of the Tower of London, but was also the first to escape it. His escape was truly spectacular, and seems to have come straight out of a sketch comedy. The night before, some of his friends had come to visit him, and had brought with them a flagon of wine, which they shared and had a good old party with the guards. What the guards did not know was that within that flagon was concealed a rope. Under the cover of darkness, and with his guards stinking drunk, climbed out of his prison window using the rope onto a waiting boat floating on the Thames. That boat then rowed out to a ship, which took him to Normandy. Ranulf may not have been universally popular, but he was a powerful, rich, and influential guy, and his support was the shot in the arm that Robert needed. Boyd, he invaded England in July 1101. 
First, he threatened to attack the important city of Winchester, the old Anglo-Saxon capital of England. Winchester was still the home of the royal treasury, and so seizing it was a key objective of Robert's, but he was prevented from doing so by none other than Matilda. She was heavily pregnant in the city at the time, and so it is thought that the optics of attacking the city where the Queen lay in some distress were not optimal. It is also possible that his heart wasn't really in the invasion. When his army eventually met Henry's at Alton in Hampshire, instead of fighting, Robert decided to deal. I'm not going to go too much into the detail of the Treaty of Alton, as the circumstances around it are contested by both contemporaries and modern historians, but Robert seems to have been misadvised, displayed his fairly typical lack of political judgement, and agreed to a pretty crappy deal. He promised to accept his brother as king in return for being re-recognised as Duke of Normandy, given all Henry's lands on the continent, barring one town that he had sworn to protect, and was given an annual pension and was given an annual pension of three thousand marks for life. All this in exchange for giving up his claim to the English throne. It seems clear that Robert had somehow managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. What followed was a fairly spectacular fall from Grace for Kerhose. The nobles that had supported him found their lands in England seized, and rightly felt thrown under the proverbial bus. Thrown out of England, they fled to Robert's court at Rouen, where they remained for five years, pissed off and agitating for Robert to make good on his promises. They pestered and nagged and pestered and nagged, and it seems that their constant pestering and nagging got to Robert, where he was about to make his second big mistake. At the particular urging of William of Warren, who had been one of the biggest losers at Alton, Robert crossed the channel to try to renegotiate the treaty, uninvited and unannounced. Instead of being met in England by negotiators, he was met by a group of soldiers, who took the Duke into custody and brought him before the King. His bargaining position was weak, and he was only saved from having to give up everything by the Queen. Robert was Matilda's godfather, and she seems to have held a little bit of affection for the man, and interceded on his behalf, acting as a mediator between Henry and Robert. It is Matilda who managed to negotiate the deal persuading Robert to give up his annual pension in return for returning the lands of William of Warren and for saving his own life. Humiliated, Robert returned to Normandy, but his base was substantially weakened. The old hard-partying Robert returned, and the duchy was returned to the old level of mismanagement that it had been in when Robert had been under control during the reign of his father. Taking advantage of the chaos in 1102... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Six, Henry invaded the duchy, and at the decisive battle of Tanchebray, Sandley defeated and deposed his brother. And William of Warren, the man whom Robert had risked everything for, had been on Henry's side in that battle. Robert was captured and imprisoned and would later die in captivity in Cardiff Castle in 1134, some 28 years later, an ignoble end to a flawed yet, I think, deeply fascinating man. Triumphant, Henry formally invested himself as the Duke of Normandy, reuniting the kingdom and duchy for the first time since the death of his father. Now, what had Matilda been doing while all this had been going on? Well, aside from mediating when Robert had made his disastrous impromptu visit to court, she had had little to do with these events. Affairs of war were not for the Queen. That is not to say, though, that she did not contribute to the success of her husband, because she had, in fact, been defending his religious flank. If you recall from two episodes back, the papacy in this period had started a running battle with the crowned heads of Europe, in an attempt to increase their influence and power. In medieval Europe, religion was everything. It is impossible to understand the Middle Ages without the basic understanding that everyone was super-Christian, and atheism was just not something that was a thing. Whoever could claim to control clerical matters had a tremendous amount of power, and the papacy was making a play for it. At this time, the conflict was over investiture. Now, I won't confuse with all the legal and technical arguments here, but basically it boiled down to who has the right to appoint bishops and archbishops? Was it kings or the pope? A row broke out when Henry attempted to have three unapproved candidates consecrated, and so Archbishop Anselm was dispatched to Rome to try and sort the problem out. Once he got there, however, he found that he had been tricked, and Henry had no interest in making a deal. If Anselm did not come back and agree to consecrate his candidates, then he was not welcome back in his kingdom. Being the intractable man that he was, Anselm refused, and so spent the next few years in exile on the continent. Now in the middle of all this testosterone-fueled bickering was Matilda. As the daughter of a devoutly religious woman and someone who had grown up in a nunnery, she spoke the language of the clergy far better than her husband. It also seems clear that she and Anselm shared a close friendship, but her duties as a wife meant that she was torn between the two. All through his exile, Anselm and Matilda wrote to each other constantly, and their correspondence are a bit of a goldmine. These letters show Matilda to be a masterful politician, skillfully walking the diplomatic tightrope, managing not to offend either side. One historian of Anselm called her letters, quote, full of wariness and political sophistication, which I think sums them up rather well. These letters are filled with small talk about each other's health and the like, as well as some spiritual guidance offered and received, and interspersed are little traps. Anselm often tells Matilda off for some offence that England was committing, and she will be like, ah, well, this is because I don't have someone like you to advise me. What if you were to, let's say, return and help me out? She did try to help Anselm, and firmly stuck herself to the centre ground. When Henry attempted to seize the revenues of the Archbishopric of Canterbury, she persuaded him to provide Anselm with a small income to mitigate this loss. She would give Anselm advice on how best to deal with the king, little tricks of the trade that only his wife would know. Anselm, though, was playing the same game, and was clearly trying to turn Matilda fully onto his side. He would say things like, quote, When you strive to mitigate the heart of the king toward me, you do what is fitting for you, and what I judge to be useful to him. An obvious line that Matilda would have seen right through. Anselm clearly had a high opinion of the influence that Matilda could bring to bear on Henry. He urged her to, quote, counsel these things publicly and privately to our lord the king, and repeat them often. This influence is known by many throughout Europe. In 1104, 
Pope Pascal II threatened to excommunicate Henry, but first he wrote directly to the Queen, urging her to, quote, beg, plead, and chide the King into seeing sense. There is evidence, though, that Henry may have grown a little frustrated with his wife's role as intercessor, the middleman between him and Anselm. The chronicler Eadmer relates an episode in 1105 where the royal couple were involved in procession, whereupon they were waylaid by 200 barefooted monks who had been suffering under Henry's policies towards the church. Henry ignored them, so they pleaded with Matilda to make him see reason. The queen then burst into tears, saying that she was too afraid to bring this up before the king. Clearly, if this event did indeed occur, then Matilda may have briefly overstepped the line, but historians have questioned whether this ever actually happened. This was an involvement in high politics to a level that is very unusual for a queen. She was dicing very close to treason here at some points, but unlike her predecessor, she towed the line very skillfully. She prevented her husband from so angering the church that he made a pariah of himself, and it is thanks to her intercession that he did not suffer excommunication, unlike the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, who was made to suffer greatly for his intransigence towards Rome, walk to Canossa. More info in the show notes. Eventually, Henry and Anselm came to a deal in 1106. He needed to settle this dispute before meeting Robert Curthose in battle, and so an agreement was reached, and Anselm agreed to return. We are told that when he returned to his lodgings, he found that Matilda had arranged for them to be richly refurbished and redecorated, a sign that relations between the two had remained strong. Throughout all of this controversy and activity, Matilda found time to fulfil her primary imperative as a queen. The pregnancy that had so interrupted Robert Curthose's invasion in 1101 resulted in a daughter who was named after a mother and grandmother. History would remember her as Empress Matilda. Two years later, though, she hit the jackpot and gave a birth to a son, William. As usual, when a healthy first son was born, there were wild celebrations throughout the kingdom. A safe transition of power without bloodshed was good for everyone. It was also the fulfilment of a prophecy that Edward the Confessor had made on his deathbed, that England would be saved from being ravaged by war, death and destruction. Quote, A green tree shall be cut through the middle, and the part cut off being carried the space of three acres, shall, without my assistance, become united again to its stem, burst forth with flowers, and stretch forth its fruit, as before from the sap again uniting. The tree was interpreted to signify the English royal bloodline, with the three acres symbolising the three previous kings, Harold, William, and William Rufus, and the reunification being the marriage of Henry and Matilda, and the birth of their son being the fruit the tree now bore. After these two births, Matilda had no more children. William of Malmesbury state that she lost all interest in having any more kids, but it's possible that Henry and Matilda, seeing the destruction that having more than one son could cause, simply decided not to have any more as a mutual choice. This went against the age-old adage that it is important to have an heir and a spare, and would very much come back to bite Henry. The end of the investiture crisis did not end Matilda's active involvement in political affairs. Indeed, her role in many ways is a direct mirror of that of her predecessor, Matilda of Flanders. The previous queen had had to spend a lot of her time running Normandy, while William I had subdued England. This time, though, it was Normandy that was causing the greatest headaches, and so Henry needed a trusted hand at the tiller while he got the rest of duchy under control. Like his father, he turned to his wife. Medieval chroniclers are notoriously reticent to give credit for women wielding power, unless they are complaining about it, of course, but we do know quite a lot about what Matilda was up to in the period, thanks to charters and other administrative documents. All government business, even in the Middle Ages, creates a paper trail, and from this we can see that Matilda wielded a lot of political power, very comparable to her predecessor, in fact. In the early years of her reign, it seems that most business while the king was away fighting Robert Curthose was handled by a group of influential nobles. Matilda was, after all, barely out of her teens at this stage. 
By the second decade of her rule, however, she was exerting more and more power. She is known to have chaired the Exchequer, the government committee that controlled the king's finances, also made clerical appointments and passed judgment on legal disputes through her chairmanship of the royal curia. An example of her sitting in judgment comes in 1116. A man named Brickstan had been imprisoned by one of Henry's officials on apparently trumped-up charges of stealing money from the royal treasury. Apparently a deeply pious man, Brickstan prayed day and night, and his devotions paid off, as three saints came to him in the night and threw off his shackles, causing a clatter that woke up the astonished guards. The case was brought to the Queen, who decreed that a miracle had happened, and pardoned Brickstan immediately. Now, of course, this story is rather far-fetched, but as usual, it's not the story itself that's important, but the implications and assumptions behind it. The fact that Audric Vitalis, who relates it, thought that Matilda had the kind of power to sit in judgement of a case of this importance is far more interesting than the actual content of it. The power to set free a prisoner on charges this severe was trusted only to the king, and so the fact that she was delegated this power shows just how much she was trusted. She had a great reputation for being the only person who could truly influence her husband. When writing to Matilda in relation to a proposed marriage between him and her daughter, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry V wrote that, quote, We have from experience come to know of your zeal in all those things that we ask from your lord. She also saved an entire city from her husband's legendary wrath. Citizens of Exeter had murdered one of Henry's officials, and he had threatened revenge, but we are told that, quote, Matilda, on whose soul God take mercy, instantly laboured on the king's grace, and gave the liberty of your city to the mayor, bailiffs, and community again. No question, in terms of influencing the king's mind, there was no one more skilled or able than Matilda, and this alone is enough to make her one of the most powerful queens of the Middle Ages. Along with all of this, Matilda also played her part in the more traditionally female roles associated with queenship, notably in running the royal court. In the last episode, we talked about how the very sophisticated Matilda of Flanders always brought a touch of decorum and class to the court, and whenever she left, it tended to descend into an orgy of drinking and fighting. Norman men were not the classes of our kind, and if you didn't have a queen around to keep them in line, well, let's just say things got messy. And, well, things did. William Rufus passed his entire 13-year reign without a queen, and so the standards of the royal court ascended to whole new levels of debauchery. Rufus's modern biographer Frank Barlow says that, quote, a court without a lady and her ladies would have been considered many to have been barbarous and uninteresting. The chroniclers of the time take all matter of swings against Rufus's court, accusing the king of his nobles of engaging in homosexual acts, wearing the wrong kind of clothes, wearing silly fancy shoes with curly toes, having too much hair, and there being no support for the arts, and for the entire countryside surrounding the royal court being ravaged wherever it went. Matilda changed all of this. Under her supervision, the court became much less of a bawdy sausage fest and far more of a cultured and sophisticated affair. Instead of all the nobles running around drinking and chasing ladies, there was art, music, and patronage of literature. The fullest description of her court comes from William of Malmesbury. Quote, News of her liberality consequently spread throughout the world, and hither flocked in troops any scholars who had a name for singing or for turning verses. Happy he thought himself the man who could please his lady's ear with a new song. Nor were they the only recipients of her bounty. It went to all sorts of men, especially to foreigners, who might accept her presence, and then advertise her fame in other countries. The English court was gaining a reputation for being one of the best in Europe, and that was all thanks to Matilda. Among the works of literature she patronised includes The Voyage of St Brendan, a story of the adventures of a travelling holy man, The Life of St Margaret by Turgot of Durham, which is a book that is the main reason why her mother was later named a saint, and even the greatest history of the period, 
Gesta Regent Anglorum by William of Malmesbury, which is one of the two major sources for all the events in the last three episodes. There were also at least two official court musicians, and there would also have been poets and artists. This was all very classy, and all thanks to the Queen. Finally, I'm going to talk about her piety. Being the daughter of a saint, it is to be expected that she would have been a very devout woman, and that does seem to have been the case. Though she seems to have been rather impatient with Faith as a child, with all the veil-throwing and stamping that we talked about earlier, she seems to have settled down very quickly. William of Malmesbury called her, quote, a woman of exceptional holiness, in piety her mother's rival, and in her own character exempt from all evil influence, outside the marriage bed of unblemished chastity. He then went on to say that, quote, under her royal robes she wore a shift of haircloth and trod church floors barefooted during Lent, nor did she shrink from washing the feet of the diseased and handling their foul discharging sores, after which she would kiss their hands at length and set food before them. The most famous description of her piety, though, comes from Matilda's younger brother David, who had later become King David I of Scotland. This is quite a long quote in an episode with a lot of quotes in it, but I'm going to relate it in full because it is just a perfect example of the kinds of devotions that made Matilda famous. Quote, One night I was in my quarters with my companions. I went up to the Queen's apartments when I was summoned by the Queen herself, and behold, the place was full of lepers, and there was the Queen standing in the midst of them, and taking off a linen cloth she had wrapped around her waist, she put it into a water basin and began to wash and dry their feet, and to kiss them most devotedly, while she was bathing and drying them with her own hands. And I said to her, My lady, what are you doing? Surely if the King knew about this, he would never deign to kiss you with his lips after you had been polluted by the putrefied feet of lepers. Then she, under a smile, said, Who does not know that the feet of the Eternal King are to be preferred over the lips of a King who is going to die? It is possible that this story is a little exaggerated, but we do know that Matilda gave lots of money to leper hospitals across England. Like her predecessor, she also made her own religious foundation, hers being at Holy Trinity in Oldgate, and also made large donations to many of the major religious houses across England and Normandy, including Salisbury and Lincoln cathedrals and Cluny Abbey. The chronicler at Hyde sums it up by saying that she was, quote, glory of monks, the honour of clergymen, the consolation of the wretched, and a fortress of safety to all. Sadly, though, her devotion to God did not save her from suffering an early death. On May Day in 1118, Matilda died in Westminster. We have no idea what she died from, but it does appear that it was very sudden. William of Malmesbury wrote that she, quote, shared in the lot of her relations, who almost all departed this life in the flower of her age. Her body actually sparked a rather ugly turf war between Westminster Abbey, the closest house to where she died, and her own foundation at Holy Trinity Oldgate. It seems that the Queen had expressed a preference to be buried at her own foundation, just as her mother and predecessor had been, but ultimately it seems that possession was nine-tenths of the law, and she was interned at Westminster. In the wake of her death, donations began flooding into religious houses, in quantities that the Hyde Chronicler calls, quote, unable to be comprehended by man. He describes 47,000 masses, 9,000 psalms, and a daily sustenance for nearly 70,000 paupers, all made in the name of the departed queen. Soon after her death, there were reports of numerous miracles occurring at her tomb, and it is possible that she may have become, like her mother, a saint, but yet another religious turf war, this time between monks at Westminster Abbey and St Paul's Cathedral, prevented the necessary testimonies from being made. The praise of Matilda of Scotland's queenship is universal. She seems to me to have been the absolute master of using the powers given to a queen to their full advantage, without ever trying to step in areas that only men were permitted to tread. Unlike her predecessor, and especially unlike her future granddaughter-in-law, Eleanor of Aquitaine, her relationship with her husband never truly wavered. 
and for a queen that wielded a tremendous amount of power in the fields of politics and diplomacy in the reign of a powerful warrior king, this is an achievement that should not be overlooked. Queens that wanted to exert real influence had to walk a very narrow tightrope, and lesser women would have either fulfilled a far more ceremonial role, or would have fallen by the wayside, but not Matilda. Venerated by her subjects, appreciated by her husband, and respected by all of Europe, she is for me the most skilled politician ever to be a queen of medieval England. The Hyde Chronicler sums her up by saying, quote, From the time England first became subject to kings, out of all the queens, none was found to be comparable to her, and none will be found in time to come, whose memory will be praised and name will be blessed throughout the ages. And I shall finish by reading the inscription on her tomb. Here lies Matilda II, the good queen of the English, formerly the wife of Henry I, mother of the Empress Matilda, and daughter of Lord Malcolm, the former King of Scots, and his consort, St Margaret. She died on the first day of May in the year of grace, 1118, and if we wish to speak of her goodness and probity of character, a day would not be sufficient. May her spirit be greatly soothed. She died having accomplished everything, but there was one thing that had been left rather precarious, the succession. She had produced son but only one. Surely that would be enough, right? Next time, we will find out how dangerous this assumption was, as Henry is forced to marry again in a panic to secure his succession. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.